Katie's smartphone rings and she grumbles as it wakes her. She reaches but fails to grab it. She sits up in bed and looks at her phone. Emile's name is on the screen. She has not spoken to her foster brother in years. After the story of the man in the red shoes, Emile stopped talking to her altogether. She could not figure out why he would be calling her after avoiding her for so long. She goes to answer the phone call right as it stops ringing. She attempts to call him back, but only reaches his voicemail. Hello, you've reached Emile Gonet. I'm not in right now, but you can leave your name, number, and a brief message, and I will get back to you. She hangs up the phone and tries again. She waits after each ring and begins to worry. Same voicemail. Same energetic stranger. Beep. Uh, Emil, it's Katie. It's been a while. I think you might have called me on accident? I got a call from you around 3 a.m. Anyways, I hope you're doing okay. I miss you. She hangs up and lays back down. Katie is restless after Emil's call. It brings back feelings of rejection and abandonment. He had cut her off like this before. As a child, Katie used to suffer from night terrors. At one point, they became so severe that Emil would not approach her for weeks out of fear. He seemed to drop off when things became uncomfortable for him. It was his usual pattern. She exhales and rolls onto her side. She waits for sleep in the darkness. Months later, Katie is getting ready for a meeting with a publisher. With precision, she applies her oxblood lipstick. She was holding on to no illusions about how this meeting would go. She knows the city could make you a star overnight, or it could eat you alive. She always had the impression that what governed the city was akin to an indifferent beast which was always hungry. For every gift it gave, it expected something in return. She once blindly followed her brother in the past to Los Angeles because she had always clung to Emil. He made her feel safe, and like she was not alone in a world that felt so very strange to her. So when Emil stopped talking to her, changed his number, and locked her out completely, she just accepted that it was because she had very little to offer him. Their entire lives, she had been holding him back because he was always looking out for her. He knew he had a greater destiny, and she herself had no sense of her own. Nope. Katie learned early on to look past the false promises this city made. When she discovered that the man in the red shoes, her book, had caught the publisher's attention, it immediately created unease within her. It was a story she had written based off an event Emile had told her about. It became the marker for Emile's abandonment. It was a story about a party that had gone terribly wrong. After hearing him tell it, she had questioned if all the drugs and partying had finally gotten to him. In paranoia, after he told her the tale, he made her promise not to speak of it to anyone, ever. She agreed because it seemed like it was the only thing that would calm him down. This was not the kind of story that people would believe, yet it took residence in her memory, and it made its home there, haunting her. Years later, she was compelled to write a fictional story about it. The party was exclusive and had been thrown by a very selective crowd. Normally, it would be difficult to get into a party like this, but Emil, Asher, and Nadia were no ordinary people. They all had qualities that set them apart from the crowd. 
as if they had been blessed by some divine power and were granted all the gifts that most of us had been shortchanged. This created a great deal of jealousy in people towards Emil. People loved to dislike and even hate him. However, Katie herself loved to be around Emil. She loved to bask in the warmth he gave. There was something about his presence that made her feel safe. It also gave her hope, but hope for what she could never figure out. Emil could grasp at anything he set his mind and heart to, only this time it did not serve her brother well. The man in the red shoes. Emil, follow me. Asher whispered as he quickly walked past. Emil made it a point to not look at Asher as he walked into the men's restroom. Earlier in the night, Asher, Nadia, and Emil were doing blow in a bathroom stall. Emil was assuming that Asher could not handle his shit. Asher had been in the scene longer than Emil, but it was Nadia who was the one who really got them into this party. Nadia turned heads everywhere she went. They both knew it was only a matter of time before she would make it. Asher went into a stall and Emil followed. Emil closed the latch behind him. That is when he noticed that Asher was trembling. His clothes were in disarray and his white dress shirt had what only could be blood. Asher, why is there blood on your shirt? Asher became ill and vomited into the toilet. His sobs cut through heaves. Emil's color drained from his face at the immediate change in his friend. Asher, what the fuck? You need to keep it together, man. This is it. We got into this party. Where's Nadia? Asher was crying over the toilet. Emil relented and tried to clean Asher up with toilet paper as he waited for him to calm down. The bathroom door opened and Asher looked up in terror. Someone immediately tried to open the locked door. When the stranger's first attempt failed, they tried again. Emil looked at his friend and held his hand up to signal for Asher to calm down. Hey buddy, I'm trying to take a shit here, do you mind? Have some fucking patience! Last time I checked, there were four other stalls open for fuck's sake. The man stopped fiddling with the door. Emil listened as the man checked every stall before exiting the bathroom. What the fuck is going on? Asher's eyes started wildly from side to side. They... they took Nadia and I to the rooftop. Fuck. Asher choked back to sob. Emil put a comforting hand on his shoulder. There were candles everywhere. Symbols drawn onto the ground. An altar. Something was burning under it. I think it was human? I never got close enough to tell, but I'm almost positive. And four men stood around the fucking thing. They kept telling Nadia she was special. Some shit about a final initiation, and their summoning would be successful? Nadia just looked at me. She was horrified. Just before this, she had told me that they had offered her a contract. They made her do some weird shit, but you know how some of these guys are? They get weird. I could tell she had no fucking clue what was going on. She just wanted the role. She grabbed my hand and we tried to leave. Asher hung his head low and began to sob. Emil grabbed him and looked at him with piercing intensity. It's okay, Asher, please. Just tell me what happened. They grabbed Nadia and dragged her to the fucking altar. They punched me in the gut when I tried to stop them. They restrained me by forcing my head to the ground. They gagged Nadia to muffle her shouting. It got cold. I could hear my heart pounding. Suddenly, something else was there with us. Terrified, 
Nadia started to resist more violently. Her muffled screaming became hysterical, and then the sounds began. Sickening sounds, tearing and crunching. Nadia's screams became unbearable every time I heard that awful fucking sound. They killed her, Emil. In the worst fucking way a person could die. When it was done, they approached me. Gravel crunched, just like Nadia's bones. I was pinned, and all I could make out were his shoes. Red shoes. The man fell onto all fours like a fucking animal, and started... started to smell me. That made me the most afraid. It spoke to me, and the sound of it made me sick. It said, Where there is one, the others are sure to be. Not this one, but I smell another. It told them to release me and watch. After that, they quickly lost interest in me and left. The men picked me up. I looked to where Nadia was as they took me away. All that was left were broken bones and mangled flesh. It made me so angry, I hit one of the men and broke his nose. His blood got all over my shirt. He punched me hard in the gut and dragged me down the stairs. They said if I told anyone about what happened, they would kill me. And they pushed me out the door and slammed it shut behind me. Emil, we need to get the hell out of here. It was smelling me. Like it was looking for something. Emil, what if it was looking for you? Me? Asher, have you lost your fucking mind? Do you even know how crazy this shit sounds? I know how it sounds, but you know me. Why would I make this up? Promise me you didn't hurt Nadia. I promise you I would never hurt Nadia. We need to get out of here. Emil took Asher's arm and led his shocked friend out of the stall. When they exited the restroom, they saw that all the guests were panicked. A woman grabbed onto her husband. They say she just jumped out the window. That she was high on drugs. With alarm, Asher looked at Emil. No. Emil, you know that's not true. Emil pulled his friend closer. There's one thing I know. It's I can smell bullshit miles away. I know you're not lying to me. We need to get the fuck out of here. Curve up your shirt. We need to get to an exit while everyone's distracted. As they moved through the crowd, Asher noticed several pairs of red shoes, and he became panicked. Emil turned around to see why Asher slowed down. Asher, what the fuck? Red shoes. Most of these people are wearing red shoes. Emil saw them. He rushed Asher to the elevator. They were able to squeeze in amongst the panicked guests. However, before the door closed, an older man entered. His back was turned to them. Emil took notice of his gray hair, black suit, and black rimmed glasses. With a shaky hand, Asher pointed to his shoes. The man wore red leather shoes. Emil could see that everyone save for this man was distressed. The man was unnaturally composed. They reached the main floor and Emil was relieved to see that the strange man was leaving. As the man exited, he stepped outside the elevator, but he stood there very still and didn't move any further. His back was still turned toward them. Finally, the elevator door closed and Emil realized he had been holding his breath the entire time. He looked at Asher. Asher had wet himself. They rushed to the car. Emil slammed the driver's door and in panic looked around. Asher wrapped his head in his arms and cried wholeheartedly. 
Emil waited for him to calm down a bit and then drove to leave the garage. He paid the woman at the window who kept a keen eye on Asher. You must have heard about the woman who jumped out the window. Take a left if you can. The other side of the street is completely blocked off. Emil nodded at the woman as she handed him a receipt. Thanks. Emil dropped Asher off at his house. Asher was still a mess. Are you gonna be okay? Asher looked at Emil as if he was nuts. No. Asher, I do want to talk about this, but I have to get sober and rest. This was a fucked up night. Let's talk about it tomorrow when we're both sober, okay? Asher nodded in defeat. Emil watched in his rear view as he slowly drove off. He could see Asher walking, his shoulders slumped towards his house. When Asher reached his doorway, he found a pair of red shoes placed upon the step. Shortly thereafter, he disappeared. After Emil told Katie the story, she reached for his hand. Is it true? We made a promise to each other not to tell anyone about the man in the red shoes. For some reason, I'm telling you now. I've known you all my life, Katie. I know I have not been the best to you, but you're special. You never want to acknowledge that for some reason. Maybe the night terrors? They scared the shit out of me. But this, this will never allow me to have a decent night rest again. I think I understand now that some things we are meant to be afraid of and other things we can misinterpret. Katie, you need to know how strong you are and you need to get as far away from this town as you can. His body was covered in a thin film of sweat. I better leave. Promise me you will keep this story to yourself. Katie hugged him, not realizing that this would be their parting goodbye. I promise, Emil, but you're starting to scare me. Are you okay? He kissed goodbye on the forehead, and with tears in his eyes, he left without another word. Katie's career really took off after that. Katie figured Nadia had become hysterical and jumped out the window from too many drugs that night. That Asher had had a breakdown and disappeared, or worse. And that Emil, her beloved foster brother, had turned into another person entirely booted her out of his life. So, to make peace with it, she decided to write a book about the man in the red shoes. She tried calling Emil again. Hello, it's Katie. I have a meeting tomorrow about the new book. The publishers really liked the red shoes story. I know you asked me not to say anything, but I just wanted to tell you that I am sorry. And also, that I miss you. Bye. Call me back? She hangs up the phone. Moments later. <gasps> Emil! But she stops when she realizes his breath is heavy and he sounds distressed on the other end. Katie! You weren't supposed to tell anyone! Don't go to that meeting! Get a plane ticket and leave LA like I told you two years ago! You need to disappear! What? You have to fucking be kidding me. I thought you, of all people, would be happy to know I might make it. And now you want me to turn away this opportunity? You, of all people, asking that of me. You know what, Emil? Fuck you! Katie hangs up the phone. The phone begins to ring again. She tries to ignore it. It goes on for five minutes before she answers. Emil, what the fuck is wrong with you? 
But she stops because she can tell something is not right. On the other end, she hears a loud, sniffing sound that sends a chill up her spine. However, as terrifying as the sniffing sound is, it is nowhere as terrifying as when the sound of the sniffing stops. She hangs up the phone. Katie nervously calls back and waits as it rings. She immediately hears, Hello, you've reached Emile Gonet. I'm not in right now, but you can leave your name, number, and a brief message, and I will get back to you. She hangs up the phone and heads downtown. Entering the building, Katie is quickly escorted into the meeting room by a tall, blonde-haired secretary wearing a finely tailored gray suit. She compliments the woman on her clothing, but the woman ignores her. The woman points to the meeting room as if she has much better things to do with her time than make small talk. They will be here shortly. Please have a seat. She then, without another look, walks off. As she does so, her heels click in perfect cadence as she goes. Katie notices a medium-sized black box wrapped in a red ribbon on the middle of the table. She sets her briefcase on the table and takes a seat. She looks out the large office windows. The city is mired by a thin veil of smog. It obscures her view of anything beyond the downtown area. Time seems to pass by with excruciating stillness. Half an hour passes. The room is cold. She rubs her arms to warm herself. Standing up, she walks around the table to warm up. She passes the strange box once, twice, three times until she loses track. Finally, she stops and walks toward it. It has a tag. She reads it. It reads, for Katie. Am I supposed to open this? She tentatively picks up the box. She pulls at the red ribbon, and with delicate hands, she opens it. Inside is a pair of brand new red shoes. She drops the box. She turns around to leave, but a man now blocks the doorway. He is wearing black rimmed glasses and his eyes glint red in the shadows. How long have you been there? The man does not respond at first, but closes the door shut behind him. A distinct locking sound is heard. Long enough. His voice unsettles her. He starts walking toward her. He's an older man in his late sixties. He looks at her as if she's the most delicious thing he's ever seen. She steps backward. You insult me. I invited you here to make you the offer of a lifetime and you're acting like I'm going to hurt you. Why is that? She does not respond. She watches him as he moves closer to her, just waiting to see one thing. I loved your story. It was very flattering, although I do believe you left out many details. Katie continues to step backward. She looks around for something she can use to protect herself with. He laughs. <laughs> You're waiting for something. I really hope it's not to see these. With inhuman speed and a frightening motion, he leaps onto the table. He's in the posture of an animal waiting to spring. He smiles, exposing sharply pointed red-stained teeth. It is exactly as she has feared. He is wearing red leather shoes. She begins to hyperventilate. You know there is nowhere for you to go, so you may as well sit down so we can talk. She shakily takes a seat. He stands up and walks along the long table slowly towards her. So, I finally get to meet Emile's little sister. 
He was able to keep me away from you for years, but eventually he slipped up. But to think some of you foster kids were grouped together. They all thought they could hide you from us. <laughs> they forgot all you stupid little shits like to find one another. By this time, he was halfway across the table. The other place we find you is Hollywood, of course, because all of you think you are all so special. Well, how special was Nadia, Emil, Asher, and Katie? How special are you? He swiftly takes a seat to the left of him and continues to look forward as he talks. Some people, they have this spark. They have something about them that makes them so fucking special. They're like a light in a vast ocean of darkness, and all the ghost flames are drawn to them for some inexplicable reason. The old gods were like that, did you know? They were people like you that had that something extra special. Humans who gathered toward and worshipped until they became the very thing they wished to see. You see, I let some of you live, but on my terms. I give you your disciples, allow you to glow, and in time die away like the rest. But some of you are uncontrollable. Some of you are defiant, and others of you... <laughs> well, some of you are just too powerful to allow to live. Now, do you want to know about my kind? He picks up the box with the red shoes and sets them down in front of her. I'm sure you have seen the Wizard of Oz. There is something about the red shoes that unsettles Katie. They do not smell or look like any leather she is familiar with. Did you know that there are no actual red shoes in the book? In the book, they are silver. We put that in there, so that when the world first saw color film, we marked that moment as ours. He smiles at the memory as if he is reliving it. Katie can see his thoughts shift, and he returns his attention onto her, which she decides she does not like. He pushes the box towards her. Katie, what happens when Dorothy puts on the red shoes and clicks three times? She goes home. Ah! She goes to a home where she belongs. Now go on and put them on. In a movement so fast it is a blur of motion, the man in the red shoes grabs her by the throat. She gasps as he begins to choke her. Don't be disrespectful, Katie. I will not ask twice. She nods yes. He drops her to the floor. She picks herself up and with shaky hands grabs the shoes. She gags at the smell of them. She puts the shoes on her sweaty feet. The moment they're on her, everything shifts and she can see that they're not alone in the office. The shifted planes reveal four other creatures in the room with them. Now everyone is here for our meeting. I think we are all in need of introductions. My name is Bagul. The other gentlemen I will introduce you to by their nicknames until we all get a little more familiar. This here is Lilith, Obizo, I-M-Y-F, and the Shoemaker. Looking back at her are four twisted and distinct-looking demons. All of them observe her with great curiosity. Obizo is particularly curious and reaches out to her with a large bulbous hand attempting to touch her. Obizo has wavy, dirty blonde matted hair, glasses, and is snacking on what looks like benzos as it drinks copious amounts of alcohol. 
in disgust. Katie takes a few steps back to avoid its reach touching her. Another demon with eight black eyes and a parasitic sucker-like mouth stands eight feet tall. It observes her with great scrutiny. Bagul smiles. That is the shoemaker. Ignore him. He is just sizing you up. Katie forgets her fear and takes a few steps towards the shoemaker. What does he make the shoes out of? Lilith, a smaller, more rotund creature with short brown hair and spectacles, stands up on its strange and cockroach-like legs. It has the voice of three people combined. It sounds like the voice of a child, an elderly woman, and a woman with an obnoxiously nasal voice. It cackles and looks at Katie's red shoes. <laughs> By ghoul, you didn't tell her. That seems particularly cruel, even for you. Katie can tell it gets extreme enjoyment out of her suffering. She decides to hide her distress to avoid giving the loathsome thing any more pleasure. The ghoul pets Lilith like a dog and smiles. I wanted to introduce her to our little family first. I didn't want to scare her off. Katie, our Dark Mother has passed. We realized one of the new incarnates might be able to replace her. But Katie, for some reason you are different. Ooh, can we awaken it and see? I want to play with an incarnate. Bagul pats his little pet on the head. Sit and behave yourself for now. It wags what looks like a tail and obeys its master. Bagul walks towards Katie. I'm going to tell you about how and why the red shoes are made. The ability to travel freely was only given to incarnates. My kind were never allowed to travel because the greater ones saw how we abused our powers in all the realms we inhabited. They never dared to think we would do what we did because it broke all universal laws. It was the ultimate sin. So we started making the red shoes. You see, Katie? The red shoes are your kind. And your red shoes should be very familiar to you. Eyes widening in psychosis, Katie stares at her shoes. The other demons begin to laugh amidst your gurgling, high-pitched, and awkward laughs. Their slow guffaws swam inside Katie's mind. She recedes into herself. Her heart pounds wildly as her chest heaves up and down. She struggles to intake a full breath, and then she falls. She falls so quickly creating a sinking feeling in her stomach, but the intensity of it is so strong that she cannot scream. Her fear locks inside her throat. Then, as quickly as it all began, she finds herself in absolute darkness. Gasping, she struggles to breathe properly and her body is covered in sweat. One thing stands out in the darkness, her red shoes. The reality of her red shoes hits her again with full force. She cries until she can cry no more. She hates her weakness. She hates how powerless she is. And then the pain is replaced by anger and she opens her mouth and begins to scream raw into the void. She screams as tears stream down her face and spit flies from her mouth from the force of it. As a woman, Katie had never been taught how to scream. She had been taught that being loud was not ladylike. And right now, she couldn't give a fuck. All of it was coming out. All of her anger for all of the injustices that have ever been done. 
all of the injustices that will continue to be because too many people like her are too weak to stop the cycle of cruelty. Her screaming goes on until she collapses and there's no pain left to purge from her small body. And then she hears the footsteps. The sound itself springs an old memory and fear into the foreground. She remembers that sound from her night terrors as a child. It is the sound of the very thing she'd been hiding from all of her life. All she had to do was accept it, and if she did, her life would never be the same. An eight-foot-tall creature became more clear with proximity. Its midnight skin was rich, with lush, navy-colored hues. Its eyes rolled wildly about, as if they were looking everywhere at once. Its many arms moved as if orchestrating actions that served a purpose she could not guess. As a child, Katie would wake up screaming at this point. This time, she just cried tears of relief. I remember you. The creature's <laughs> eyes stopped rolling wildly and focused on Katie. With one hand, it gently caresses Katie's head as she wakes. And I remember you. Tell me, child, after all these years, what would compel you to call out to Mother Death? Katie wipes her tears and stands up. I'm not afraid anymore. I am the incarnate you seek. I know you by all your names. Mother Death looks at Katie's red shoes and nods in understanding. With intricate motions, weapons are willed into each strong hand of the deity. I've been waiting for an incarnate to call my name for a very, very long time. Out of all the other gods, it was my name you called out to. I know that you think that you're weak, Katie. But you are very powerful to do this thing that you have done. You have to understand that once you accept your power, you will never be the person you once were. I will for a time not be what I am in full. We will become something new. There is an ancient and powerful evil in your world that has broken many of the great universal laws. I am justice. I am the one who will punish all the monsters you seek because I am the greatest monster of all. Katie, you will become part of a new era. The exactor of justice your world so desperately needs right now. Do you accept the gift that I am about to give you? Looking the mother of death in the eyes, Katie thought she was looking into the eyes that knew infinite time and realities. The immensity of this being overwhelms and frightens her. But she realizes that in this case, her only true fear is of power itself. That if anyone is to wield it, it needs to be someone like Katie because all others before her have, have failed in their selfishness and greed. I accept. Katie is back in the room surrounded by demons who seem to have stopped laughing. The irritatingly whiny one Lilith scuttles over to her and with a short stubby hand tries to lift her head. Is it dead? Katie smiles a blood red smile of finely sharpened teeth. Her eyes roll wildly about her head, and in a blur of motion, 
She grabs Lilith by the throat and decapitates her. The other demons take a step back. Obizo is too slow from all its gluttonous binging and tries to take off its red shoes. That is not our Dark Mother. That is something else. Katie thrusts her arms outward, and two long ancient swords begin to take form in both her hands. Once they do, she steps back towards Obizo and springs them together to meet at his neck. Cowardly, it blubbers until its head falls to the ground. With an equally fast motion, she cuts the Achilles heels of the shoemaker. It screeches and falls to the floor. I-M-Y-F is the only one who is quick enough to shift out and escape. Bagul is continuing to watch her in shock. How? Katie shifted and turned slightly more into the mother of death. Only those who know the truest of suffering are able to call my name Bagul. Bagul's eyes focus in terror at the realization of whom and what is talking to him now. No, you're not allowed to come here. Not unless they all agree. The incarnate is tying the newly acquired heads of Lilith and Obizo to a collection on its belt. It replies to Bagul. When the world falls into total corruption, I am always granted entry. I have come to exterminate all of you, filth. But first, I want a pair of shoes. And the shoemaker here is going to help me make them. She steps toward Bagul, who for centuries had been a stranger to fear. She smiles wildly. Revenge is a cowardly way for you greater gods to restore balance. Revenge makes you no better than us. She ushers the shoemaker over to her feet. It crawls toward her in terror. It is not the gods that are exacting revenge upon you and yours, Bagul. It is I. Their hands are clean. I, for one, have no care for clean hands, and red is not my color. Now, what I want is a pair of very special and very powerful shoes. And you, Bagul, are going to oblige me. You're listening to Scintillating Stories featuring Mother Death, written by Stephanie Aaliyah, adapted for radio play by Ghislaine, featuring the voices of Ghislaine, Ryan of Intervision, Gia LaDolce, Gabriel Huerta, and Stephen Farbman. Edited by producer Ryan, produced by Intervision Entertainment and What Happens After 2 a.m., with music provided by Nightbloom Music and Worldwide Spies. Check out Nightbloom Music on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and on www.nightbloommusic.com. Artwork for the Scintillating Stories logo created by Lindsay Payton. Take a look at her other projects. She's amazing. Catch more shenanigans from Intervision Entertainment on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and YouTube. And of course, on our website, intervisionentertainment.com, where you can also buy tickets to catch Scintillating Stories live in San Diego. Oh, and please find us on all the social media apps you use. We're there, and we're looking for you. Finally, help keep the vision alive and consider donating as low as $1 a month to Intervision Entertainment on Patreon.com. <laughs> <laughs>